You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. I've always admired people who create something new and meaningful from nothing, particularly when their creation is something that makes society better. It's not easy. It takes courage, vision and incredible tenacity to overcome the naysayers and inevitable obstacles. In this special Founders episode, I talk to five remarkable people who have each successfully founded projects that make a tangible, beneficial and lasting contribution to the world. Andrew Penfold founded AIEF in 2008. Its work supports young Indigenous people from over 400 communities in every state and territory of Australia. With a 94% year 12 completion rate, its outcomes are truly nation-changing. Kicking off with your film, Mm -hmm. you have chosen the Keanu Reeves, Patrick Swayze action thriller, Point Break. Mm. 1991. Mate, I'm imagining and I'm hoping there's something other than you like surfing behind this choice. Tell me about it. Well, I think a lot of my choices don't come down to the content of the thing itself. It's really (laughs) about the memories of it. You understand the format? Uh, Well, (laughs) I I guess so. But um, no, I mean, when I seriously think about what movie means the most to me, um, what film means the most to me, it just, this takes me back to a whole different life and a whole circle of friends. And, you know, 1991, I was living in London formed an amazing relationship with this guy that I met in a pub on a Thursday night or a Tuesday night and invited him to come with us on a weekend to St. Patrick's Day in Dublin the following weekend. And he wasn't able to come um, because he had a wedding to go through on the Saturday, but he then got on a plane, left the wedding and came to St. Patrick's Day um, and spent the rest of the weekend with us in Dublin. A couple of years later, he became my best man and um, when, when I got married and just this instant friendship with someone and basically there was him and another guy that he met and my wife, um, Michelle, girlfriend at the time, um, and the four of us were just this little gang in London. And, in you know, London was such an amazing part of my life, going over, working these massive big law well, where firms. Where were you living, and, by the way? Uh, I was living in Fulham, right. southwest London, yep, um, just around the corner from Earl's Court where all the Aussies kind of <laughs> congregate. I think Fulham was the kind of the, you know, Earl's Court was the Darlinghurst and Fulham was the Paddington kind right. of thing. It was a little bit yuppie, but, um, but a great place to live with, with everything around it. Um, and it was just an amazing time in my life. And as you know, um, certainly back then, I don't know what it's like these days, but pubs close early. You used to have the Sunday lockout where you had to, you know, leave the pub and the pub would close for the afternoon and so on. And so every time we'd go out, we'd always come back to our place, this gang of four, and we'd play music and we'd have a few drinks and we'd just muck around, the four, <laughs> four of us, um, largely the four of us, and we must have watched that movie 50, 60 times. And it was just the most 
ridiculous movie. I mean, I almost chose Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure <laughs> for the same reason, yeah. right? They were our two sort of staples. <laughs> and um, so for me, it's not, you know, there's some funny lines. I do love surfing. Yeah. Um, I thought, you know, Keanu was a fantastic actor and not necessarily that was his best movie, but, um, you know, an interesting individual. And, um, and I just, it just grew on me. And even as a result of that, we, um, you know, there's this famous scene in it where Keanu jumps out of a plane without a parachute on. <laughs> ah. After watching that, we all had this fun experience where the four of us, plus a couple of others we managed to drag along, went and did this weekend up in Kent where you learn to jump out of a plane and yeah. do a parachuting. Um, but we got there on the Friday night, and as it often happens, you know, Friday night, everyone goes a little bit too hard. <laughs> and um, we turned up on the Sunday, we're staying in the local pub. And of course, because we're staying there, they kept the bar open after closing hours. And we got to the the training the next day after, so, sorry, this was the Sunday. We'd done our training on the Saturday, turned up on the Sunday morning to do our jump. And the instructor said to us, um, well, just before we do anything, you know, just need, has anyone been drinking? <laughs> And we were like, oh, well, we had a couple last night. It was like, none of you are allowed to jump. So we'd spent all this time and then we had to wait months to get everyone available, the right weather, no wind and yeah. all of this sort of stuff to do it. But we eventually did it. And, you know, they take a little photo off a camera that they mount on the wing as you jump out. And this is not tandem with an instructor. Yeah. You are sitting in the door of a plane yeah. and I've you have it, to yeah. push yourself out. <laughs> and it's just incredibly scary. Um, and so that for me was a kind of an interesting moment in life of doing that as well and an experience and adventure. I would never do it again because I don't want to sort of risk my life. But, um, you know, that came from the film or yeah. having a few beers one so, night so and like, Let's go and jump out of a plane. Like, what a stupid thing to do. But the photo that was taken off the wing, Stu looked at it and he actually got it printed on a T-shirt and <laughs> gave it to me. And he said, that is the ultimate definition of fear looking yeah. at your face. <laughs> and, uh, and he was right, but amazing experience. But just the whole thing of London, I mean, a great city, a great time of life, great age. And what were you doing there? Uh, so basically when I finished uni, um, my girlfriend, now wife, Michelle and I went traveling all around the world and we spent a couple of years backpacking literally, you know, every corner of the earth. And as, um, most young Aussies did in those days and probably still do today. And, um, eventually went to London to get a job and to live in London. It was part of the Aussie kind of coming of age. What you was know? the job? What was your profession? Well, Fessa. it was interesting because I'd qualified, I'd, I'd studied law, I'd done the six-month college of law, qualified as a solicitor in Australia, and whilst I was doing that, I worked for two years in a really big city firm in Sydney, big, in, uh, you know, finance firm and so on. And uh, anyway, so I got to London thinking I'd waltz into a job in a fancy city um, law firm, and, of course, this was just at the end of 1990 and the recession where interest rates were at 20%. So every single firm in London was firing lawyers left, right and centre by the hundreds. And here's me sending out my resume trying to get a job. I mean, in those days, no mobile phone. I was working as a bartender, making like £3 an hour through an agency, and I had to pay all my money to typists to write cover <laughs> letters and resumes for them for me send them off in the mail to law firms all over the place. And I didn't have a home phone because I was staying on people's sofas <laughs> and stuff. So I had to actually give the phone number of a phone box, right? right? <laughs> and so on my days off, I would sit in this phone box in the ground floor of the Law Society in Chancery Lane and give them the phone number and sit by the phone all day waiting for the call. Yeah. Of course, no one ever called me, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, eventually one firm, Freshfields, called me and said, you know, there's no way we can hire you as a lawyer but because um, uh, we're firing people left, right and centre, but we do have an opening for a paralegal. 
um, it's better than being a bartender making three pounds an hour. Would you like to take it? So um, I was over the moon and um, and I basically said to them, look, I, that would be fantastic as long as that doesn't preclude you on a policy basis from transferring me to become a lawyer. And they said, yeah, we'll give you six months and then see how you go. And as it actually happened, they promoted me to become a lawyer in about four weeks. So that was awesome. So, you know, I worked in Freshfields doing um, you know, big city finance firm. We were the lawyers to the Bank of England and represented all these massive companies. And I pretty much spent the two years there doing financing for aircraft fleets, um, you know, major sort of facilities, billions of dollars, hundreds of banks and a big Irish airline um, aircraft leasing company. And just amazing, amazing experience. And, you know, then once I was not earning three pounds an hour and living on someone's sofa, uh, you know, we were sort of trotting off to Paris for the weekend and down to Amsterdam. And and I worked with a whole lot of guys in London office who were, um, you know, from all over the world, every nationality. So we had this real gang there. And um, But, you know, the weekend's Work was always has been for me. Work is kind of work, and friends are friends. And I never sort of like to cross over the two. So I did have some great friendships with the work colleagues and weekends and so on. But really, the core of that four of us as this kind of gang, um, which was the sort of the back to the point break kind of thing, <laughs> you know, where it all started. And it was just all the great times we had. And unfortunately, Stu, the guy who I was talking about, um, uh, who then became our best man two years after we married. He was actually um, killed in Melbourne. So we were down there for a Bledisloe Cup game. We'd flown down from Hong Kong when I was living at the time. And, um, uh, you know, we all went out afterwards for a few beers and I went home a little bit earlier and Michelle, my wife, and, and Stu and a couple of others left this bar and crossed a road, um, mm. you know, major road, and basically there was a taxi coming up on the inside that they didn't see. And Stu and my wife were holding hands as they crossed the road and they both got hit by this taxi and thrown 50 metres up the road. Unfortunately, Stu, you know, landed directly on his head and was killed instantly and Michelle kind of woke up in a daze next to him and, you know, he was gone. So, you know, there's the um, that sort of tragic element of it as mm. well, you know, and I kind of, I guess, um, you know, the movie reminds me of Stu um, and, uh, and Stu... Um, <clears throat> just kind of reminds me about a lot of things in life that I value and are important and so on. Um, so, you know, and I think the, the, the funny thing is that until that time, all of my best friends had come from people that I'd grown up with through boarding school or, you know, other real sort of long-term interactions. And here's a guy I met in one night in a pub and he turned up in Dublin the following weekend to come and join us for a party and, um, and two years later was my best man. Actually, he was Michelle's best man. Um, so Michelle and I decided we'd both have a best man and we'd both have a bridesmaid. So, you know, <laughs> Doyle was my best man, Stu was Michelle's best man, and then we both had bridesmaids as well. Um, and, you know, and and Stu used to have this, he was just this guy who was so happy and so full of life and so adventurous. He had so many friends and adventures and everything. And, um, and we became best friends really quickly, but not just me. It was Michelle and I as well. It was a real kind of mutual friendship for both of us. But he used to say, you know, who's this bloody Larry guy? You know, happy as Larry. He goes, forget Larry. I'm happy as Stu. <laughs> happy as right? Stu. So, so now kind of we've got this in our in our sort of lexicon as well where whenever we're happy and feeling great, we're happy as Stu. And it's just all that sort of memories of him and and time in London and, you know, and also remembering the the tragedy and um and just that kind of idea of living life to the full and taking every opportunity and, and building friendships and connections with people because you just never know, you know. Yeah, it hangs on a thread, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
David Handley founded Sculpture by the Sea in 1997. Every year, over half a million people enjoy this unique event, making it the world's largest free-to-the-public outdoor sculpture exhibition. Now, the Magus by John Fowles, 1965, is regarded by many respectable people as an absolute classic, one of the top 100 books ever published. Have you seen the film of it? I have not seen the film of it, and I don't think I want to. Have you heard the Woody Allen quote? No, I haven't heard the Woody so Allen Woody quote. Woody Allen, as we all know, uh, hasn't had a trouble-free life. And he was asked a couple of years ago, uh, if you could press a button, you know, what would you do again? And, and the interviewer expecting New York Times him to mention all the things in his private life. And he said, I wouldn't change a thing apart from I wouldn't watch the Magus. <laughs> And who, who was the lead in it again? Was it Michael Caine. It was Michael Caine. And Michael Caine said, it's the worst film. And, and, and trust me, he's done a few. It was the worst film. The film is so confusing. But the great thing is you didn't choose it as a film. You chose it as a book on The Five of My Life. So uh, tell us about the book and tell us why you chose it. Oh, it's an extraordinary book. It's, it's a rite of passage book that is so demeaned by that phrase, rite of passage, because you have someone who is educated, a little bit self-pitying, but has so much hope for his life, for the world. He he sees through the the pettiness and shallowness of the world and can't work out how to rise above it and still live. This is the main character in the, the book. The main character yeah. in the book. And there's this line that I'll paraphrase relatively early on when he graduates from Oxford. I had a third-class degree and a first-class illusion that I was a poet. Suitably equipped to fail, I set out upon the world. <laughs> and are you seeing parallels between yourself and this character? Prior to doing anything of substance, the parallels were considerable. <laughs> and, but, they, the, but this is the great thing about these extraordinary novels. If you read them and you, you embrace them, you don't just read them and go, well, that was pretty heavy. You read them and you think, okay, I'm going to set that up as a mirror for myself. I'm going to look at myself in that mirror. Yes, I can still have a lot of fun. Yes, I can still, you know, waste every cent that I ever get or whatever. But am I going to literally live my life like this? Am I not going to achieve anything? Um, I love it when people talk about books that affected their entire lives. Is it, but you read that in Greece where it's largely set. So it's like a double, double impact. That's always a, a lovely thing to, to do. I was in Greece on the way to London to do a postgraduate master's degree in law, knowing I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> but this was a great way to avoid a year in the workforce and to think and you know, those sort of bits of paper just mean that when you go to do something perhaps frivolous like organising a nude ocean swim in Sydney <laughs> Harbour, that people will go, well, actually, you have the ability to pull off a nude ocean swim in Sydney <laughs> Harbour. Yeah. And it's been very helpful. Um, sadly, along the way, you know, my legal skills have been required not just for the upside of managing sculpture by the sea but for the downside as well. And is this is people trying to sue you or...? No, not sue, try to take advantage of right. us, us or the artists. There's a major national photography competition a few years ago where the winning photograph was taken at Sculpture by the Sea and this mega... Right. Mon- Featuring a work. Yeah, yeah. And this mega 
multinational company rang us up and said, wow, you guys are going to get so much free publicity. <laughs> and we said, that's great. We'd really love to work with you on that. The only thing is the artist has the copyright in that image. And there's the co- section of the Copyright Act that says that. Oh, um, but can't we just talk about this? Yeah, we can. And, well, they weren't happy when we meant talk yeah. properly. Not that they could just tell us what was going to happen. Zara Seidler founded the Daily Oz in 2017 to offer a different and digestible way to stay informed. So successful, it has changed the way young Australians engage with the issues of the day and for many is now the only place they access the news. The third choice on Five My Life. Now, listen, I have to. You've done a plug, so I'm going to do a plug, right? And this is, not, this is not for um, the lovely community that listen. This is for you specifically. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Better write it down. So the Five of My Life podcast song choice mm-hmm. is on Spotify. It is a sensation because the algorithms will never give it to you because mm. they'd have to guess Zara's choice mm. and Anthony Albanese's choice. Well, you might like completely different things. Well, actually, funny you say that because Anthony Albanese uploaded his ISO Spotify playlist yesterday and I was like, I like your music. Yeah, yeah. He, I like what you've chosen. Yeah, he was he was great. Joy, joy Division. <laughs> and, and you get a total variety for, from electronic choir to, to heavy metal. Every song gets on the Five My Life playlist. And you have chosen the third and final single from Gang of Views' debut studio album, The Positions, and it's Magnolia. suspect there's a mental health link there as well there actually isn't <laughs> oh okay great great <laughs> which is shocking given what the subject matter is um so the song is a um a piece that is actually written by dave leo pepper the lead singer about his experience um surviving a suicide attempt but when i first heard this song i had no idea what it was about and I had no idea what I was going into. So I was living in Washington, D.C. I was on exchange for university and uh, I was studying politics at Georgetown University. And I got to Washington, D.C. I know you said we weren't going to be talking about Trump, but here we are. I got there the weekend of Donald Trump's inauguration. And so that was kind of my first touch point with D.C. So I attended that inauguration and then I, uh, the day after, went to a women's march and that was, of course, that, that massive million person attended women's march. And then the following weekend, I was like, well, what do I do now? All the excitement is gone. Um, and so I travelled to New York and my brother David, I've got three brothers, and my brother David was living there at the time. He's since become a digital nomad, so he's not there anymore. But... Um, he was like, I want to take you to a gig. And I was like, oh, I don't know. He named some band, Paint of Youths, that I'd never heard of, wasn't particularly interested. It was freezing at the time. He he said, you know what, just trust me. So we go to this absolute dive bar in the middle of Brooklyn, I believe it was, and there are about 
30 people there and this band, Gang of Youths, come on stage. And it just, I, I don't know how to explain what it did to me, but they have since been my favourite band. I have seen them at least six times, most recently at a stadium, packed. And I just think about the fact that the first time I saw them was in this intimate, tiny, freezing cold um, Brooklyn bar and the the lead singer is he's just phenomenal because he is obviously somebody that is deeply intelligent and thoughtful and complex and so his lyrics reflect that and they're really they are like a riddle to read and with the most sophisticated vocabulary that you sometimes don't understand but then he gets on stage and he kind of mixes femininity and masculinity and he's like gyrating his hips and it's just absurd he's an absurd person to watch but it's just gripping you like can't look away and so when I hear that song, it takes me back to being in New York with my brother the weekend after Donald Trump's inauguration, wondering what the world looks like, but knowing that Gang of Views will make it all okay. And they've been my favourite band since that day. It's, it's wonderful hearing you uh, talk about it, Zara. It is David Pocock chose them on Five My Life as well. And, I saw David Pocock most recently at a Gang of Youth concert. Ah, well, there you go. And, and so because, again, this sort of, I love this, it explodes my world in terms of all these things I've never heard of. So I go off and I, I read the books and listen to the songs and watch the films. And, and so uh, I told my son Alex that David Pocock had chosen Say Yes to Life and, and you know, never heard of, never heard of David Pocock I'm a rugby fan, mm. but, um, you know, never heard of the band, blah, blah, blah. And he went, oh my God, Dad, you've got to listen. And he did this thing said you've got to listen to the album in it, the order and this particular song yeah. David's song is the last one and I and I almost had the experience that you're talking about I'm going how and that bloke you know David Leo Pape you go you're not allowed to be that handsome and that talented I know you, 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 it, you've got to be insult. stupid or nasty give me something to cling to you can't we need just... something <laughs> <laughs> he's horrible to his mother or something anyway. so something uh, <laughs> now you mentioned Trump um, so we're not we're, we're evergreen on this show, but uh, yes. given that you're you're only thirteen, uh, I need to ask you about your because because you're um, I, honestly you work so bloody hard. How I mean I do this. I'm going to release one of these every two weeks until I die and hand over to my son or my daughter. Uh, but you do like one a day. I don't know how you do it, but you are politically engaged in a way that makes me ashamed because I couldn't give a. I mean I couldn't give a tuppence right I, I just my mind goes to custard yeah 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 blah 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 um so but you're all over it like a bad suit um tell me <laughs> what are your uh if any political aspirations are we are, am i looking at the future the next julia gillard in 10 years time 20 years time or, or are you you're happy being on the sidelines commentating blah 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 for me my uh, love affair with politics is the way that i feel when i can engage other people in politics. And so the job that I get to do now, which is to run a very small independent media company that engages hundreds of thousands of young Aussies in the news and in current affairs and politics, to me, that is the most satisfying thing of all because I'm I'm not being wrestled in either direction. Um, I get to be straight down the line, but I get to show people why you should care and why it's important. And so for me, I'm happy like this. It, it's the most satisfying job in the world. Uh, well, so here we go. I reckon you've just totally dodged that question. Yeah, <laughs> like a true politician. <laughs> so I'm going to blow some smoke your way um, because I've been following the Daily Oz, uh, which I, you know, to my embarrassment, I hadn't heard of before. Uh, 
And you do a remarkable thing. I, I've spent, a, you know, 35 years, longer than you've been alive, in a career <laughs> trying to make the complex simple. And all that thing about Winston Churchill, you know, sorry, I didn't have the time to write a short letter, so here's a long one. <laughs> For you to uh, make the news bite-size, not in a moronically tabloid way, is a gift. That's a real, real gift. So when I get... I appreciate that. Well, no, it is. I mean, and, and it me to get an email that says, I only got a minute, bang, here's the world news. You think, well, I'm sort of predisposed to think that what I'm about to get will be moronically oversimplified. But it's really instructive and informative. And if your objective is to get people engaged in things who have got short attention spans and blah, 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 well, bloody hell, it's working. That's a really, really valuable thing to do for society because that's how we run the world and make the world better. Exactly. So this is a round the houses backhanded compliment to say you're very very clever and well done and thank you for what you do but then it leaves me want to talk about one of my hobby horses is you must work stupidly hard i'm trying to do this thing where i'm trying to stop glorifying hard work because so in my previous life i worked in government relations lobbying style thing And there was just this real glorification of just stupid hours. And now I'm trying to move away from that. Do I work stupid hours? Yes, but it's also my own thing. I choose to do so. And I am surrounded by an amazing team. I'm I'm really lucky that we have grown this not just to be Sam, my best friend and I, but we've got 13 people now working with us. And so to have that means that I know when I want to check out I can because the news can be a lot um and so it is hard work but it's worth it and the the satisfaction the fulfillment I get from it makes it all worth it Ronnie Khan founded Oz Harvest in 2004 As Australia's leading food rescue organisation, every year Oz Harvest saves 12 million kilos of food from going to waste and delivers over 30 million meals to people in need. For your uh, place, you've chosen Bondi Beach, which I I gather you live quite near the beach? I live on the beach, yeah, very close to the beach. Tell me about this choice. So first of all, water, I think, is such an important part of my life. I find it so calming, meditative, exquisite. It's a wonder. It's a miracle. I don't understand it, but I I can look at it for hours in all its different seasons and incarnations. So that's a sacred place for me. Bondi Bondi itself, um, some years ago, we had... A tragedy and a learning and a gift and a in our lives um, and my daughter-in-law passed away and we had and and Bandai Beach was an important part of that the, the, the healing process or the part of the healing process part of the process that she couldn't be part of mm. but we had little ceremonies down on the beach and in the corner I walk on the beach as often as I can. Um, I go to the Crabby Hole, which is a beautiful place for breakfast on a Sunday morning after I've walked with my friend to Bronte and back. 
So it's just, it's a place for solace, but it's a place for absolute joy. Mm. Wow. I, can I read you something that I read this morning? Please do. It's in Joseph Campbell's book, The Power of Myth. And he says, what does it mean to have a sacred place? And he says, this is an absolute necessity for anybody today. You must have a room or a certain hour or so a day where you don't know what was in the newspapers that morning. You don't know who your friends are. You don't know what you owe anybody. You don't know what anybody owes to you. This is a place where you can simply experience and bring forth what you are and what you might be. Beautiful. Isn't that divine? Because that's what a beach and particularly Bondi Beach means for me. And I think for many people in this uh, digitalized era, uh, we all crave belonging, but physical belonging is being sort of chipped away at. So you can be more connected with a friend in Madrid who has my interests and a friend in New York has my interests, and I don't know my next door neighbor. To have somewhere that you can actually access physically every day yeah. is, a, is a beautiful, meaningful thing. Well, I think it's a crucial thing. Absolutely hugely important. Now, now you reading about you and watching and listening some of your recordings, you are driven by uh, a need for purpose. Do you really mind talking a little bit about that? Not at all, because I think what I've experienced over the last 15 years, and, and yes, you are right, I am so profoundly blessed to have found my calling or to be on my path, my dharma, which I, whether I stumbled upon or was supposed to be on, um, I am blessed for that. And over the last 15 years, I've probably had a thousand people come to me and say, how do I find purpose? What is purpose? What is meaning? It is now such a jargonistic thing and we're all looking for it somewhere. But really one, one answer to that is when you know that you're alive, when you feel alive in what it is you're doing, in some way you have found your purpose. So, yeah, I am possessed. I'm possessed about being this, this vehicle, this vessel to deliver what it is I'm supposed to be delivering. And if there's any way what I do can either help anybody else find their calling, because I think in so many ways we are all so close to our calling. We just don't know because we don't know what we're looking for. Uh, have you read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for of Meaning? Course. How of course. Transform- one of my other guests chose yes. that as, as her book, Sarah yeah. Wilson. But that's one of my, that would get into my top five with Me uh, Fine Balance. Me too. Because uh, and- the resilience and the purpose, that bigger purpose that kept somebody alive through that hideously un- unimaginable time. And before yeah. you're right about it, purpose becoming jargonistic. Before all the self-help yeah. sort of flunkies of the last thirty years, Nietzsche said happiness a yay, a nay, and a goal. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. You don't exactly. need to read anything else. No. You, 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 Abs- a bit of clarity. Your job is to end food waste. Absolutely, you're doing that's quite a good job at it. <laughs> Keep going. And and the, and the great thing is, we haven't got to be puritanical about doing good. I look at you, and your work serves you as well as the notion, the nation and the globe. You go, it, it, it's a wonderful win-win. Is Your life is filled with clarity and purpose, and you're feeding, what, what is it now? How many people do you feed a, a well, year? We deliver about 28 million meals a year. God love you. 
Good, good on you. And you started with one van. I did, <laughs> I did. Van. But Can I you couldn't... remember the first meal you handed out? <laughs> Absolutely. I remember going to the very first, well, because I was in the catering industry, I had a hospitality background. I had an event produ- uh, production company. There were many, there was lots of food. Can I be crude yeah. for a second? Yes. My, my dad, who was, God rest his soul, who was in the Navy and, and yes. the military have had strong language, there is none so virtuous as a reformed whore. <laughs> you were in the entertainment industry, woman, throwing away volavons like well, a that is why I started Das Harvest. <laughs> I, and, and that is actually a clue to other people finding their purpose. Yes, yes. When you solve a problem that you have, perhaps it's solving a problem for somebody else. Absolutely. And that's exactly the issue. So, so there were times, and I know which food I delivered then, but actually... When I had made the decision to rescue food, even though I still ran my business for the next seven years because I hadn't oh, started. I didn't realize you doubled up, right? Oh, I hadn't started Oz Harvest to make a living out of it. And I didn't start Oz Harvest because I was a rich, bored person. I started it because I needed to do this. Sure. Um, I do recall going to in Bondi Junction. Well, not Bondi Junction, just before you get to Bondi Junction. Um, there was the very first organic store and it was the original macro. And I went and I used to shop there and I walked I in it, and yeah. said, you know, how would you feel if you had any surplus food that I could collect? And they said, oh, my God, that's totally brilliant. Do you want to take something now? And there were some bottles of milk and there were some a few odd-looking veggies and they put some butter. They just pulled a few things off their shelf, and, and I walked out in a little box, and I thought, oh, my God, it was that easy. If there was this store, there must be others. Because originally, all I thought was I'd solve this issue in the hospitality industry. I didn't know then that $20 billion worth of good food went to waste every year just in Australia, that a third of all food produced goes to waste globally. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that what has evolved since committing and being purpose-driven to minimize food waste is that actually there is a bigger wrong. And the bigger wrong is that here, I mean, there isn't a bigger wrong. Globally and climate change-wise, this is the third biggest reason for climate change. So fundamentally, it has to be solved. And so in solving that problem given that good food would feed vulnerable people, looking at vulnerable people, thinking, what do we do to upskill? What do we do to shift and change here in Australia that 4 million people suffer from food security or insecurity each year? South Africa, 11 million people need food, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. So, you know, there is this dual, um, dual battle bring down food waste, but help upskill those in need. And then in order to bring down food waste, we actually, we, each and every one of us citizens of every country and of this planet have to shift and change our behavior. So that is very much part of the active role that we now play. One of the things that you do that I admire beyond words is you understand the difference between it's important to strategize and think and intellectualize between thinking and doing 
the, the amount of times I have met very well-intentioned, lovely people who, in reality, good intention doesn't really feed a hungry child, you know, or educate an uneducated child. It's can you have the good intentions and translate that into actions that actually have an outcome that makes the world better? And you, Ronnie, can't do so. Well, good on Ronnie, you. Yeah, I don't do that by myself, and no. that is what is so hugely important. But I, I, I think you're right. I think that is part of the major attraction and magnetism of Oz Harvest that we actually fundamentally every day are picking up food, delivering it, feeding people. We are educating kids in school. We are educating vulnerable people. We're doing it. And I think that's what people love. <laughs> well, keep going. In 2017, William Ziegart published The Poetry Pharmacy to Instant International Acclaim a landmark multi-format concept that has changed how millions view and use poetry around the world. Right, we are going to move to your fifth choice on Five of My Life, which is, and, and, and forgive me if I don't pronounce this correctly, the Akima Stone Buddha Head. A Khmer, Khmer. Khmer, sorry, Khmer Stone Buddha Head. So the Khmers were the people who built Angkor Wat. In the 9th to 13th century in Cambodia. Though, that's the... Yes, yes. And even actually, in a way, the pre-Khmers who were there before started building it, um, I think probably in the sort of 6th or 7th. Angkor Wat was the biggest city in the world in that period. It had over a million people living there. And you're lucky where you are in the world because it's not that far away from Australia and a place that many Australians visit. It's an enormous city filled with temples and waterways. And you only have to look at the friezes or the stone friezes of the, the life that they were leading there to see that there was something rather remarkable and extraordinary happening. And uh, I'm obsessed by ancient civilizations. I, I've spent my life traveling and exploring ruins because they intrigue me. And uh, uh, one day I was in the basement of a auction house in London that was closing down and they were having a sale of their last, their last items. And there was this little head, um, um, a Khmer head. And it's uh, a treasured possession, not just for it, but the symbolism of what it means to me. I was very lucky when I started my publishing business um, as quite a young man, I was 26. The deal I had with my business partner was that I would get to travel for three months a year and he would mind the shop. And so for 15 years, I, 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 I traveled for three months exploring ruins and going to odd places and hard to reach places. And um, it's been in a way the, the most rewarding part of my life. So that, that, that head and my bizarre collection of bits and pieces that, that, that surround me at home uh, are my, collection of memories from these extraordinary travels. It makes me want to ask, you've prescribed thousands of poems to thousands of people in your work, and you have done all that travel. And one of the things that you said, a, a lovely quote, is that there's a basic spiritual sameness that runs throughout humanity. And I, I want to ask is, when I read that quote, I, I was assuming that you were talking about all the different people who come to you with ailments and you prescribe them a poem. But do you think that sameness doesn't just go across 
different types of people that you've met, but throughout the ages. We're, we're all sort of bound up in an inescapable blanket of mutuality. Yes. And, yeah. you know, basically it's the same, whether you're a 9th century Cambodian or a 21st century Thorpe Nest dweller. It's all been said, done, thought, felt before. Not much is new, really. I think the most intriguing story I ever heard, which um, connects it actually, was it was a, a man who'd been in the Dalai Lama's inner circle. And I heard him speak in the 1980s in Westminster Hall in London, at a time where people from that uh, background weren't, weren't quite as celebrated as they are today. And he was talking to a rather sort of cynical audience of men in suits. And um, it got to question time. And one, one of the, one of the Englishmen put his arms up and hand up and said, could you please tell me what's the essential difference between your world and ours in simple terms? And a few other people went, yeah. And I thought, oh gosh, he's, you know, he's going to be up against it. And he said, I, I think the essential difference between my world and yours is threefold. He said, you, you, you in, in the West have been, in the Judeo-Christian-Islamic -Christ, tradition have been brought up with the principle of, of original sin. And it governs your psyche your thinking, your art, your culture, and your day-to-day -day existence. He said, I was brought up in a world of original blessing. He said, think what a difference that would make. He said, secondly, you in the West have kind of given up on God, and you've replaced God with technology. And you think in the West you have the most sophisticated technology that humanity has ever encountered. He said, I'll tell you something you won't believe, but I promise you it's true. He said, in Tibet, we have a technology equally as sophisticated as yours. Only ours is the technology of the inner world and yours is of the outer world. He said the third most important difference is that I grew up in Lhasa and uh, a strange American evangelist came to try and convert us to Christianity. And he translated the Lord's Prayer into Tibetan rather badly. And it read, our daddy that lives in the sky, give us today our daily biscuit. And he said, not surprisingly, it didn't really catch on here. And the Dalai Lama decided that um, it was very important if we were to spread the word and get people to understand about our culture and where we come from, that we go to these different countries and really uh, learn the language and the culture. So I've grown up in Britain, really, and I went to Cambridge. And uh, after I left Cambridge, I said to the Dalai Lama, what should I do with the rest of my time here? And he said, you must work in hospices. And I've worked in hospices for the last 20 years of my life. And he said, there I've understand the most crucial difference between my world and yours. He said, you only understand the importance of living when you know you're going to die. And you could have heard a pin drop and the cynicism in the audience melted away and we trooped out really thoughtfully. I love the, uh, the first point that the Dalai Lama made there. My friend Chrissy has got a, a wonderful phrase for, from, I forget which master, but it's, you are good, be good. Which is goes to the. I mean, you you were born good. I mean, you know, when we're a babe in swaddling clothes, we're you know essentially nice people with a little bit of God in all of us, and you know that you haven't got to change yourself. Just be good because you are good. Don't you know? It's not. Don't stop apologising for the apple and the serpent. Well, think of the great Muhammad Ali, who perhaps not known as a poet, but obviously you know great, very talented with words. And the thing he wrote, me, we. Says it all. Reading about you, I, I found uh, I found it sort of mildly intimidating, um, and uh, I, I sent a sent an email to my son, jokingly saying, "If you want to feel bad about yourself, 
<laughs> read this. And it was my notes on you. And you're, you're very accomplished throughout a whole host of different fields with charities for the homeless, organisations for peace in the Middle East. Uh, I mean, you've written books on poetry. You've written a book on bloody golf. I mean, it sort of goes on and on and on. Uh, it's very uh, impressive. And so the question I wanted to ask, if you don't mind, is your view and experience of of failure? In some ways, I, I was raised with an anxious psyche, either genetically or uh, and by being sent to boarding school and by being the child of a refugee, all those kinds of things. Um, my dad said to me when I was 11, heaven knows we get dependent enough on people, but never ever get dependent on this country because one day you might have to leave it. So I've had a permanent sense, slight unease of otherness, of uh, feeling um, I've got to get on with things, all that kind of stuff. And in some ways, however much I've ever been lucky enough to do, to achieve or whatever, uh, it's a a clean slate every morning, uh, as though none of that's ever happened. I think that makes for a productive life but not necessarily an easy life. Some of my closest friends and people I admire the most are actually people who wake up in the morning without any of this sturm und drang and can just appreciate and enjoy the day and not have a mind full of shoulds and and oughts and musts. So it's a blessing and a curse. This has been, uh, for me, an absolute privilege uh, chatting to you. I, I just find it fascinating and that the last question uh, we ask all of our guests on five of my life is who would you like to hear on five of my life next and why i have to say i've got a bit of a thing about barack obama i'd i'd be pretty keen to hear what he has to say i think he's been one person that we could all look up look up to and uh, and he hasn't let us down wonderful well we'll get on the blower to barack and William, thank you so much for sharing your five on five, my life. That, that's just one of the most uh, enjoyable and thought-provoking conversations we've had on the show to date. So uh, God bless and love and success in your future, mate. And uh, thank you again. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.